the devil. My guess is no matter where you come from this morning, whether you believe in God or not, we all find that the idea of a devil a little bit ridiculous. In our culture, it's really hard to take seriously. That we either laugh off the idea or it just weirds us out. That whatever our response is this morning, when we hear the word devil, it's something I think few of us take very seriously. For example, Fox is coming out with a new show in January called Lucifer. And if you've seen any of the, the previews to the show, they treat the idea of Satan or the devil like, like many of us do with some humor. The tagline for the show is, being bad never looked so good. Right? The, ta- the, the idea of the devil is, is approached with tongue firmly planted in cheek. Certainly not something to be taken seriously. Or there are many uh, studies that have been done that show that, that even Christians have a hard time believing there's actually a personal Satan, a real being called the devil. That George Bonner recently did a study that said 40% of American Christians don't think Satan is a real being. And yet the text that we just heard read, the Gospel of Matthew, says not just that the devil's a real person, but Matthew actually puts the story of Satan tempting Jesus at a crucial moment. Before Jesus ever goes into ministry, right after Jesus' baptism, here we get this story of Satan coming in to tempt Jesus. But whatever you think about the idea of the devil, Matthew clearly thinks This moment in Jesus' life is central to us and how we understand who Jesus is, what he did. Which raises all kinds of questions, at least for me. Now, why does Jesus even have to be tempted? Better yet, if Jesus is is who Matthew has said Jesus is, how can Jesus even be tempted? If he's the son of God, how can this mean anything? How can this be a meaningful temptation? And even more personally to us, why is Matthew insisting That Jesus had to be tempted and not fall. Which raises the question, what if if he did fall? What's at stake in this story? Those are the questions at the center of this narrative. But before we can even begin to tackle those questions, we have to tackle our own skepticism of the supernatural. That all of us in this room, whether you're Christian or whether you're not... All of us, I think, walk in a world where we think we can explain everything we see, where there's nothing below the surface. I think, I think every person in this room struggles in some sense to, to understand there is a supernatural world in which we live and don't see. So before we jump into this narrative, three things I want to say about a devil, the idea of a devil or a personal Satan, and why I think it's important we take this seriously. First, if you have a hard time believing um, in, a, in a devil, if, if you're not a Christian, you think this is just weird or ridiculous, let me just say, we're, we as white Westerners in, in North America or Europe are really the only people in the world who struggle to believe in a devil. That if, if you live in South America, if you live in Africa, if you live in Asia, this isn't a problem for, for those folks. In fact, they, they think you cannot understand the world without a supernatural, personal evil. So if you struggle with the idea of a devil, I would just encourage you, don't. Don't immediately reject all cultures that are different than you. That maybe they have some wisdom to offer us here. That maybe we don't see everything. That don't be so quick to dismiss what other people take as fact, as true. The second thing I would say is this. If you believe in God, is it really that stretch to go on and say that there's supernatural personal good, there's also supernatural personal evil? I'm certainly not saying the two things are equal to one another. They are not. God is in a very different position than Satan is. And yet if we... If we're Christians, we hold hold the idea that God exists. Why is it a stretch to say that a Satan, a devil, would exist? 
And thirdly and most importantly, I would say if the Bible is right on this, that there is a being and beings who are supernatural and personal and evil incarnate, then, then you will not be able to defeat the darkness in your own heart, in your own life, in your workplace, in your community, in our city, in our world. We are in over our heads here. The darkness, the evil that you and I encounter in this world, it has a root that you and I do not have the strength to take care of. You need God's help. The evil is both deeply complicated and very dangerous. Take this painting, The Temptation of of St. Anthony. It's it's in the Nelson Atkins Museum here in Kansas City. Now, the the demonic here, it's pictured as a beautiful woman with a, a gift of gold. But if you look closer, underneath her dress is a claw. It's hard to see. I mean, if you're standing even right by the painting, you, you probably you'd miss it. And it's a beautiful image and a picture of the dangerous reality that the Bible, when the Bible talks about evil, it is not to be laughed away. It is dangerous. And if the Bible is right and, and you don't believe in a devil, or even if you do, we're all tempted to take the gold. To only see the beauty of the woman and miss the claw under her dress. And so before you dismiss Matthew, Jesus, the Bible, we need to hear this narrative. Why Jesus had to be tempted, what Matthew taught was at stake here in this story, in your life and in mine. And what we'll find is that that Jesus sees temptation fundamentally different than how you and I see temptation. That he sees the world that you and I see in many ways upside down. That's why we, we title this series in Matthew, An Upside Down Kingdom. There's many reasons, but as we begin this narrative into Jesus' life, the way he sees the world is upside down from us. Which is why he doesn't give in to temptation like you and I do. He sees power differently than you and I. He sees his trust in God differently than you and I. He sees love differently than you and I. So let's jump into this narrative under those three headings. An upside-down power, an upside-down trust, and upside-down love. Now these temptations, they've always been really confusing to me. I take the first uh, temptation. Jesus, he's been fasting in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, which doesn't mean he necessarily hasn't eaten for 40 straight days, but he's been in some sort of rigorous fast. So obviously he's hungry. And so that, that part's not surprising to me. Any of you who have ever been hungry, right? That's a part where most of us are weakest or we're angriest or we just hate life the most, right? So it's not surprising to me Jesus would come and say, or Satan would come to Jesus in this moment and say, eat. But the question for me is, is, is how is that exactly a temptation for Jesus? What's so bad about him saying, hey, stones become bread, I'm hungry, and eating? What's so bad about this moment? Well, this temptation, it's about bread, and it's not about bread. And notice how Satan began the temptation in, in verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God. Now, it's important for us to understand, Satan's not questioning whether or not Jesus is the Son of God here. They're, they're not stupid. They both know Jesus is the Son of God. What Jesus is, is a, or what Satan is asking Jesus is, is what kind of Son of God are you going to be? Should a Son of God starve in the wilderness? Should the, should the Son of God be hungry or thirsty? Jesus, what are you doing out here in the wilderness? He's not questioning 
if Jesus is the Son of God. He's questioning what kind of Son of God Jesus is going to be. And if you remember last week, the baptism of Jesus, this shouldn't surprise us, this, this is where Satan starts. Because in the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus was baptized, God the Father speaks over Jesus and says this in Matthew 3.17. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And you have to understand, this is, this is not God cheering for Jesus like a father cheers for a daughter when she scores a basket or for a son when he gets a good grade on a test. It's not Jesus say, or God saying to, to, over Jesus, good job, son. He's actually quoting scripture over Jesus. Isaiah 42. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That, that Jesus, or God is not saying to Jesus here, good job, son. He's actually saying, I have a job for you, son. And it's in Isaiah 42, the son with whom God was well pleased. And there's two things about this son in Isaiah 42 and the chapters beyond Isaiah 42 where this son is talked about. Two things about the son. First, the son is to be a king. If you're with us in our Christmas series for Advent in Matthew 1 and 2, that's the main point of Matthew 1 and 2. Jesus is a king. He's a king that Isaiah talked about. This son in Isaiah 42 is a king, but... This king will also suffer. Listen to what else Isaiah says about this son with whom God is well pleased. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, God's people will be healed. This king will be pierced and crushed and wounded. So this, this temptation in Matthew 4, it's not about bread. I mean, it's about bread, but it's not about bread. This temptation is about what kind of son of God Jesus is going to be. And God the Father, in commissioning Jesus to go and be the Messiah, had commissioned him to give up his power. To not lay claim to his rights as God, but instead to go hungry and to suffer. To not use his power for his own ends, but to use his power to deny himself and go to a cross. That is the Son of God that Jesus has been called to be. And that is what Satan is questioning. What would a Son of God do? Why would a Son of God do that? Jesus, do you really want to be that type of Son who goes hungry, who starves? And Jesus responds, yes. Because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, listen, whether you're a Christian or you're not, that is a temptation you and I have failed. We do not live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let me ask, what, what sets the agenda for your thoughts? Or what sets the agenda for your, your desires? Who sets the, sets the agenda for the choices that you make in your life? Because we, we live in a culture that says the only person who should determine how you live your life is you. Right, that the last thing we want is someone else telling us how to run our lives, telling us who we are. Right? That's a part of the beauty of being American. We get to define who we are and we get to go and live that out in freedom. Right? It's why my bank replaced the, the name of my bank on my credit card with the word freedom. Right? To say, listen, don't, don't let them tell you how to spend your money. You're free. It's why when someone questions a decision you've made, they corner you. It's, you're always defensive. Even though you know they may be right, you still defend your actions because you, you get to decide what's right, what's wrong, how to live. 
That's why we all want to sing with Elsa in Frozen. Right? It's time to see what I can do, test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Do we want to sing? No. Um, right? We want to use whatever power we have, whatever freedom we have to define life for ourselves. And so that means we've fallen for the very thing Jesus is tempted with here by Satan. Be who you are. Just be yourself. Use your power to define life how you want to live. Use your power, your resources, your life for you. But Jesus is not like us. His life, his power, his freedom will not be used for himself. It will be used for others, for us. And so he gives up his power. He goes hungry in the desert and he does not turn a stone into bread. And at the end of his life, he will go thirsty on a cross. Because he does not live for himself. He lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. How how is Jesus able to do that? How is Jesus able to be a human being and yet also God who lives every breath of his life by the word of God? What does he see that we don't? The second temptation is, is to me even stranger than the first. Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple, and I don't know how they got there, but he takes him to the top of the temple and he says, jump off because you know God will take care of you. He actually quotes Psalm 91, and that's important for us to see that that Jesus responds to Satan's first temptation by quoting the Bible to Satan. So Satan now quotes the Bible back to Jesus. He says, Jesus, go to the temple and jump off, because you remember Psalm 91. In Psalm 91, it was about this. It was that the one who trusts in God, God will protect. Like, Like a mother takes a newborn into her arms and cares for her. That's how God cares for and protects the one who trusts in him. Right, and as Andrew mentioned earlier, with 11 babies born um, in our church this year, you can see a living illustration of this just about any Sunday you walk in here of moms caring for, for their babies, protecting them, loving them. So Satan quotes a scripture to Jesus to say, if you trust God, that's how your life should go. But again, this is really confusing to me. How is, how is it a temptation for Jesus to jump off the temple and for God to... To, to catch him, to protect him. How is, how is, what is going on here? And here's what we have to understand. No one will trust God, the Father, in their life more than Jesus does. So if anyone deserves Psalm 91 to be true of them, it's Jesus. If anyone deserves to have every step of his way guarded and protected and cared for and loved, it's Jesus. And yet, that's not the treatment Jesus will get in this life. That even though he will trust God more than any human being in his life, he will suffer more than any other human being in his life. That Jesus, when he walked on earth, gave up the promise of Psalm 91 so that you and I could have the promise of Psalm 91. And that's again what Satan is tempting Jesus with. Jesus, why would you trust God if he's not going to prove himself to you? If you're going to do all this stuff, jump off the temple. Make God prove himself worthy of, his, of your trust. But Jesus responds again with scripture. You should not put the Lord, your God, to the test. The Satan is here tempting Jesus with a conditional trust of God. For God to have to prove himself in order for Jesus to trust him. And I have to tell you, this is probably the temptation that hits me the hardest. 
I can't speak for you, but I, I can speak for me. So often when, when life gets difficult or when I have questions, I want God to prove himself before I have to take any steps further. But God, if I'm, I'm going to trust you, you have to do this. Here's your part, and once you do your part, I'll do my part. That's the very thing Satan is asking Jesus to do. And Jesus is saying, no, I will trust, even though I know trusting will lead me to ruin. Will lead me out of protection and into the hands of my enemies. I don't know that I have that faith. When I was in, in seminary, I was a worship pastor at the church I attended, and I'll never forget my, my first night on the job. I was excited. I was making copies of the music in the, the copy room. Band practice was about to start. And, and in walked the person who um, was the volunteer worship leader before, um, before they had hired me. Her name was Betsy. And Betsy had stepped down because her daughter Lydia had, had died soon after childbirth. And so Betsy was just in an excruciating process of grieving and sorrow. And it was there in our first conversation in that copy room. She just, she just poured out her heart to me. Her disappointment, her sadness, but also her faith. Her fierce trust in God. And I don't remember a lot from that conversation, the words that were spoken other than the tears that were shed. But I remember her fierce trust in God. And I remember me stepping back and not being sure I had that kind of faith. That my life had been very easy up until that point. And I wasn't sure that if God removed his protection from me, I'd keep trusting him. So later that summer, we asked people from the congregation to write their own psalms and read them in the, serv- uh, the service. We called it Summer of Psalms. And Betsy, Betsy wrote one, and it was, it was by far the best. And it, it pressed into me even further, this question of what, is my trust of God conditional? Is there a limit to, to what I'll trust for God? Is there a cost at some point that I will not be willing to pay to trust God? And her psalm, I want to share some with, with you. Here's what she wrote. God, my provider, your blessing is far from me. I thought loving you would free me from the darkest of tragedies. I thought your protection would spare me this pain. Loving you has cost me everything. But near me is your steadying hand. Your breath blows over my downcast face. Your kindness collects all my tears. Your presence hangs thick about me. So I will wait for your breath, your healing, your blessing. I will wait for you. Like I said, I don't know that I have that kind of faith. I want to think I do, and I know I'm called to that kind of faith. A faith that says no conditions. No, there's no, there's, God, you do not have to prove yourself to me. Because you are God, I will trust. But I, have to say, I have to ask the question, could I trust God, even if Psalm 91 wasn't true in the short, short term for me? Could I trust God even if I knew it would cost me everything? Even if I knew it would lead me to suffering? Would I still trust That is the question Satan is putting to Jesus. And Jesus displays an unconditional trust of his Father. That even though his life will not lead him, his earthly life will not lead him into the care Psalm 91 describes. He'll get that care beyond the grave, but not in this life. Instead, his trust of God, his fierce faith in God, the fact that he did everything in his life by the word of God will lead him right into the hands of his enemies, right into a cross. And I think of that, I reflect on this temptation, and I ask, how is Jesus able to trust God like that? What does he see that you and I don't? But I confess that the first two temptations are confusing enough to me. The third one, though, is the one that perplexes me the most. 
The Satan, he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and, and says, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And what's important here that we understand is here Satan makes explicit what he's trying to do in all three of the temptations to Jesus. That Satan, he's offering Jesus kingdom, a power without a cross. A crown without a cross. That Jesus is a king and Satan doesn't dispute this. But he's asking Jesus, listen, should a king starve? Should a king be led into to suffering? And above all, should a king have to, to get his kingdom through a cross? Jesus, worship me here now, and it's yours. There's a number of things that have perplexed me about this, this moment. Now, first of all, and this question has been hanging over us, so how can even Jesus be tempted, right? If he's, if he's God, then why doesn't he just say no and move on, right? He's more powerful than all of us. How, how can this be a legitimate temptation of, of Jesus? And listen, this is a good and complex question many Christians have answered in, in many different ways. And to me, the most compelling answer is something that Christian author Rosaria Butterfield gets at in, 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 in what she says. And here's what she writes. That Jesus sweated blood. He withstood the test. He ran the whole race. And we cannot make such claims. We've not been tested that hard or humiliated that comprehensively. We're in the ABCs of kindergarten, of the school of temptation. By not following into temptation, Jesus ran the whole race while I collapsed in the first mile. Now, the reality is you and I, we have no idea what Jesus faced in this moment or throughout his life. That Jesus ran to places that you and I will never go because he never gave in. That he faced things that you and I could never imagine because we fell in the first Mile. And so there's a tension here. Yes, Jesus is God. He has a power and a resource available to him that you and I don't. And yet, he also ran to places you and I don't know about. Think of it like this. The longest I've ever ran in my entire life is two miles. Because it hurt too much, I was too tired, and no one was chasing me. So I stopped, right? And I have a goal. Eventually, I want to run a mini marathon. I have, I have some sights that I'm running longer. And so I cannot look at a marathoner and say, well, he runs 26 miles because he's in really good shape, right? I, I can't say that because I have no idea. I know what mile 1.8 feels like, right? I don't know what mile 26 feels like. And if that's true of running, how much more true is it of the supernatural world in which Jesus faced down things you and I cannot even begin to understand because we fell in the first mile. We're in kindergarten. We don't understand we quit. We gave in. And so we cannot begin to imagine what Jesus is facing here in Matthew 4. And which is why I think later in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 16, Jesus begins to tell the disciples, he begins to come out in the open, listen, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And one of his disciples, Peter, says to Jesus, no. Messiahs don't die, they don't go, they don't go to the cross. That doesn't, no, you shouldn't die, you shouldn't suffer. And you remember what Jesus says in that response? Get behind me, Satan. And that moment to me reveals two things. One, I, I don't want to say Jesus snapped at Peter in this moment, but you get a sense of the urgency. And basically, Jesus says to Peter the same thing he says to Satan here in Temptation 3. Get away from me, Satan. You and I cannot imagine what he faced in those moments. The terrible, looming, excruciating reality of the cross, which hung over him his entire life. That the only way he was to to ascend to the right hand of God was to suffer for me and you, to give up his power, to trust God through suffering and to love us even though we offered him nothing in return. So that's how Jesus, 
I think he, listen, he's really facing temptation. But there's another question to me, which is how, do, how does Satan say to Jesus, here are the kingdoms of the world, they're yours if you fall down and worship me, right? Isn't God in charge? Isn't, aren't the kingdoms of the world, aren't they God's? How can Satan say this? But the older I get, the more this makes sense to me. I don't struggle with this moment like I did when I was, when I was a teenager, when I was a kid. So one of, one of the most compelling reasons for any person not to believe in God is the presence of really terrible, awful evil in this world. And the older you get, the longer list of things you have to look at. The longer list of evil you have to reflect on and mourn over. And the reality is God gave me a very good childhood. I did not have much to mourn as a child. In fact, I was thinking about this this morning. Probably the biggest thing I had to mourn as a child was in 1993, the Kansas Jayhawks beat the Indiana Hoosiers in the NCAA tournament. And I literally, I cried as a kid. I was so angry. And if I had known what a Jayhawk was, and I still don't know what a Jayhawk is, but if I had known what a Jayhawk was in that moment, I would have found one and broken a commandment. Right? That's, that's all I had to mourn as a kid was my sports team loss or when I got a bad grade. on. T- I didn't face the reality of this world, but now, it, and listen, I'm only 32. I got a long way to, well, I hope I have a long way to go. That's up to God. But at 32, my, the list is much longer than it was at eight or nine years old. So I think now I have a better understanding of what's going on in this moment with Jesus and with Satan. And to illustrate, I don't know if this will work, but I'll try. Um, not, not too long ago, I watched the, the Ken Burns baseball documentary. It's 10, uh, 10 different movies. It's like 1,000 hours long. It's forever long. If you love baseball, you should give all 1,000 hours to it. It's, it's really good. But there was one scene in, in the movie that affected me like, like no other film, movie, song, experience has affected me in my entire life. It was a scene that depicted Jackie Robinson's funeral. And what happened was, it was Jackie Robinson, he wasn't just one of the greatest baseball players of all time, a Hall of Famer. He was the first African-American baseball player to break the color barrier and play as a black player in Major League Baseball. And Jackie died at the age of 53. And when they were describing his death, Red Barber, who was a broadcaster with the Dodgers, who at first hated Jackie Robinson and African Americans and did not want the color barrier to to break, but over time repented and grew to be friends with Jackie. He said that that Jackie didn't die of diabetes and all the things that that the doctor said Jackie died over. Red said that that Jackie died because of the burden he carried. The abuse, the threats, the mocking from other umpires, other players, teammates, just because he was black. And no one wanted a black person to play baseball. And it was, listen, I, this is still to me one of the weirdest moments in my entire life, but I, I just began to weep in that moment. And listen, that's not normal for me. All right? When I took a personality test in seminary, the, the lady literally looked at me like, you are so calm, it's actually kind of weird. It's like, thanks, I don't know what that means, but all right, I'll take it. Like, I'm, I'm, a me- I'm a mellow guy, and yet in this moment, I just, like, didn't just start crying. I mean, it was ugly crying. And I, like, I had no idea what was going on. Like, I was glad Misty was gone. I wasn't drinking anything, okay? I was, I was okay. I was of sound mind. And I just lost it. I didn't understand why. And I, I paused the movie, and I just, I'm like, what is going on? I just started praying, reflecting, what is happening to me um, in this moment? And, and I, I think this is what was happening. Is for a moment, I just saw how terrible this world is. Now, listen, I don't, I don't care who you are. Jackie Robinson maybe. The best human being this world had to offer, non-Jesus Christ division. 
I mean, turned the other cheek, took on suffering and injustice, and paved the way for so many people for it. And yet he could only last 53 years in this world because of what this world did to him. And if the best we human beings have to offer get worn out and torn down and destroyed by this world, what hope do I have in the face of this evil, in the face of this world? And when you see this, when the the veil of this world is pulled back and you finally get a glimpse of how there is real evil and darkness in this world, listen, you have two options. You either give up your belief in God, right? And a lot of people do. They see the senseless, unfair evil and they say, there cannot be a God overseeing all of this. But I cannot find that answer satisfying. Because if that's your answer, then what that means is, is... Listen, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, how much money you make, how much good you try to do in this world. You can, you can do, live an amazing life and make a small dent in all of the vastness of evil and darkness in this world. But the reality is you're not going to make that much of a dent. And probably 50 years after you're dead, evil will swallow up all the good that you did anyway. How's that for an encouraging thought on Sunday morning, right? You, listen, if, if there's no God, that's, that's what's going to happen. Or you give up a naive view of evil. The evil is far more structured and complex and powerful than I could ever have imagined. And I don't have the power or the resources or the wisdom or the brilliance to truly stop it. And not just in my own heart, not just the temptations I fall into, but this world and the vastness of evil in it. Because Satan's evil, listen, it's not just bound up in individuals making bad decisions but then those decisions, those, those individuals, they get together and they form communities and governments and they make laws. They get weapons. And so if you take Matthew 4 seriously, there is a supernatural personal evil. The danger is not that there's a little red figure on your shoulder telling you to eat one more piece of chocolate. The danger is that he has sway over nations and governments and kingdoms. Which is why he can look at Jesus and say, do you see all this? That's mine. And you can have it if you worship me. And now do you see in this moment why we need this story, why we need this narrative? Do you see the depth of our problem according to the Bible? We're in over our heads. No wonder your life can feel out of control. No matter how much good intention you bring to it, no matter how much effort you bring to it. No wonder this world can feel so deeply broken. And no wonder how hard you may try to fix your life. So often it just gets broken worse and worse. This is not a fight you're up to. And this is not a fight that you or I can win. And that's what Matthew wants you to see. You're in over your head. You've fallen in with an evil that you do not have the wisdom or the brilliance to overcome. And that leads me to the last question this text asks of us, asks of me. Why do you and I need Jesus not to give in here? Why do we need a Savior who fought the temptation and won? Because Matthew is saying here, our problem is not that you and I have a few bad habits. That we need to make ourselves a little bit better and improve ourselves, make our lives a little bit better, our world a little bit better. Our problem is a supernatural evil has captured this world in our own hearts and driven us away from God. And we've joined a kingdom that's ruled by someone who hates us and wants to destroy us. That's what Satan is showing Jesus, and if Jesus had failed here, you and I would have no hope. We'd have no way out. No hope for the prevailing evil and darkness that's in our own hearts and in this world. That if Jesus fails here, we all fail here. 
But he doesn't. His last answer makes it clear to Satan who he worships. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And in that moment, a new kingdom opened. A kingdom that says the evil and darkness in this world does not have the last word. That you and I can work for good in this life, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our families, knowing there's a stronger kingdom than the one kingdom, that the kingdom Satan shows Jesus here. A kingdom not of darkness, not of slavery, but a kingdom of light and freedom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom, this kingdom, it calls you to one response this morning and for the rest of your life, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. It's to look to Christ and never to your own abilities, never to yourself. That we fell, we fell in the first mile, but Jesus did not. And so we are to spend our lives looking to Christ and never to ourselves. So what does that even mean? What does it mean for you and I to look to Christ? And let me just say two things in conclusion. That first, look to Christ by dwelling in his word. And that we cannot miss the fact that every single response Jesus gives to Satan here is quoting scripture back at Satan. Quoting the book of Deuteronomy back at Satan. In the new year, listen, it's always a great time to begin a new habit. And listen, you're probably going to fail at the new habits you're trying to, to increase that. And that's okay. Just keep going after it and after it. But I encourage you, enter a new habit this year of reading the Bible, memorizing scripture, whatever it is. That's why we produce the open here bookmarks, send out emails. Because we want to be a people who look to Christ by dwelling in his word. Because listen, no matter who you are this morning, you're dwelling in someone's word. Maybe it's your own. Or maybe it's the voice of someone far worse. The voice speaking to Jesus here. Look to Christ by dwelling in his word. A second, look to Christ by worshiping your way to a new love. Right, that Jesus ends, the, ends this narrative, ends this story by saying, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Worship. Which I realize sounds like a dry religious word, but listen, worship is love. Worship is, is affection. That, that maybe you've never been quite sure why we sing in church. We sing for the same reason if you were to go to New York City and walk down Broadway, you'd find theaters full of, of shows with singing. Because singing is a way to work beauty and truth deeper into our hearts. That singing has a way of getting past the wrong loves we have in our lives and driving us to the right love. And, and listen, this may sound silly to you, but I mean this. And I, this has been true in my own life. For some of us, the best way to fight temptation is to sing louder. You need to sing louder. Because the one who, who you sing to loves you with an upside down love. He doesn't love you and he didn't give himself to you because you offered something to him. He didn't suffer excruciating temptation because he hoped to get something from you. No, he's given all of himself to you. Now, the Spirit did not lead Jesus into the wilderness just so that he could be tempted. He led Jesus into the wilderness to get you and I out. That we are a people dwelling in darkness, but on us a light has dawned. A new kingdom whose king has a power that's stronger than the failures that so often run our lives. A king who, whose love gave himself up for us. So we never look to our own efforts. We only look to Christ. And his kingdom is at hand. Let's pray.